Do you have a lead foot? Here's some heavy news. Speeding is one of the leading causes of traffic crashes. This is Cody Bears with YDOT. Don't put your schedule above everyone else's safety. Stop tailgating. Don't try to beat traffic lights. And please, pass safely and legally. Drive at safer speeds. Remember the posted speed limit. Slow down. Look out for the other driver. Slow down, Leadfoot. The Indian Relay Podcast is made possible by the Institute of Tribal Learning at Central Wyoming College. The Institute coordinates American Indian services through continued education on historical and contemporary issues. CWC proudly serves the two nations of the Wind River Reservation, and through the Institute, they seek to provide positive influences to educate students, along with tribal and non-tribal community members on American Indian issues on a local and national scale. To support the Institute and its mission, or to learn more, email Ivan Posey, iposey at cwc.edu. That's I-P-O-S-E-Y at cwc.edu. Here on the Wind River Indian Reservation, we have stories to tell, history to share, and wisdom to give. On this show, we share the well-roundedness of our people. In that process, we break the mold placed on us and reclaim our identity. Northern Arapaho and Eastern Shoshone. We are two nations and one community. This is Indian Relay, a Wind River Indian Reservation podcast. Haba, Bisihi, Nate Aina, Jaha Ain, and Naasina, Na, Hinane Ainina. Hello, all my relatives. My name is Jakahe Black, and I belong to the Northern Arapaho tribe. I want to say thank you for joining us on an episode of Indian Relay. It's been a couple of weeks, but we're getting back at it. I hope everyone is doing good and staying safe. Um, so this is going to be one of my final episodes. We're in the transition of phasing in some new hosts, and we have two students with us today from Central Wyoming Colleges observing, and we're going to go ahead and let them introduce themselves so you can get a little familiar with them. Haba, Nasitna, Angelo Sage. I'm a sophomore at CWC, and I'm happy to be observing today's podcast. Hello, my name is Ronnie Ferris. I'm Eastern Shoshone. I am a freshman at Central Wyoming College. Huh? This is Ivan Posey um, from Central Wyoming College, Tribal Education Coordinator. Helping, helping um, the broadcast today and uh, assisting Jokahe and again welcoming the two bright students here to uh, start with our transition. Before I introduce today's guest, I want to send a couple of shout outs. I want to send out a shout out to Porters in Riverton, Wyoming for providing the studio in which we're currently recording. I want to send a shout out to Noah Pakotis and JG Pakotis, aka Just James. They are the providers of today's intro music and the outro music, and they make all of their music in-house, so please go check them out on social media. I also want to send a shout-out to Mike Chingman for providing the backdrop to our Indian Relay podcast logo. Um, so go check out more of his work. He also has Chingman's Grub and Pub, so if you're looking for your food to be catered to any of your events, definitely go check him out. <clears throat> today's guest is... Leslie Shakespeare. Leslie Shakespeare has an undergrad in criminal justice, has a master's in public administration. He was a law enforcement 
officer for the Bureau of Indian Affairs for four years before moving on to the Shoshone Business Council, and he is currently the superintendent of the Wind River Agency. Welcome. Uh, thank you, Mr. Black and Mr. Posey and the students here, Mr. Sage and Ms. Ferris. It's good to be here with you all today. Mm-hmm. Uh, good morning, Mr. Shakespeare, and welcome to our podcast. Um, you know, the, the, the reasoning behind the podcast is to get stories, and we understand, you know, you're one of the youngest uh, tribal superintendents we've had on the Wind River Reservation. You're actually the first enrolled member from this reservation to serve as the superintendent, which is a big thing, you know. So we're very, very proud of you in terms of uh, all the efforts you made. And I know you're a young man, but uh, give us a little background about yourself, you know, where you was born, raised, and, you know, so, so forth. Well, I was born right here in Riverton, Wyoming, several years ago. I grew up here on Wind River Reservation, just about all the communities, like I say, I lived in from ETT to Boulder Flats, Fort Washkie, out to Crowheart, and I currently reside in Arapahoe right now. So I've lived just about every place on the reservation, been just about everywhere there is to go on the reservation. Um, my family did move around a lot when I was younger. Uh, they moved out of state. So I've been to every single state in the United States. I've lived in about half of them. Went to school a lot of different places from uh, Virginia to Alaska, you know, so a lot of that um, educational experience early on has helped me shape my views of where I'm at right now. Um, I went to the University of Wyoming. Well, before that, I graduated from Wyoming in high school, and then I went to the University of Wyoming. I got my bachelor's degree in criminal justice, and that was actually a, an interesting time period when I was there. Uh, we had, you know, the Matthew Shepard incident happened during my years there. Had 9-11 happened during my years there. There's a lot of unrest um, during those years of college, but it was also very informative to see how people react to different situations, how, you know, what they learned from those different situations. And, you know, that helped shape my experience there and it helped shape how people in dealing with people and where they come from, how to listen to people. Uh, after I graduated from uh, University of Wyoming. I actually was a political science major initially. Okay. I had enough credits for either. I went towards criminal justice. I had a little more interest in some of those classes, and I got my undergraduate degree in American Indian Studies. And from there, I went to work for the Eastern Shoshone Tribe as a juvenile probation officer. I was there for eight years, four as a, a probation officer, and then another four as a director of that program. And during that time period, I decided I wanted to continue on with my education. So I went online through the outreach of the, it was called Norwick University out of Vermont. Did my classes online, did a little bit of residency there, got my master's degree and continued to work from there to law enforcement to liaison and then business council. With a degree in criminal justice and being a law enforcement officer for four years, what sort of experiences did you have when you were younger that sort of influenced you to go in that direction? Well, I remember when I first uh, was 
interested in going into law enforcement. I know my, my family said that don't do that. It's dangerous. I also know I worked a lot with uh, Mr. Posey when he was chairman of the Shoney Tribe, and you know law enforcement area, law enforcement, and getting police officers for our area because at that time. Uh, Wind River only had six officers, and they were covering the whole 2.2 million acres. And uh, through the efforts of uh, Mr. Posey's with the U.S. Senate and his um, testimonies to the Senate Committee on Indian Affairs, uh, we we were selected as one of the HPPG. It's called HPPG, High Performance Priority Goals, and that was a presidential initiative under the Obama administration to increase police officers in select reservations to see if that ratio would help deter crime. And so I, I helped a lot with that. So that I got a lot of interest in that. And I know there was a group of friends and I who were trying to recruit police officers to get from the six up to the 32 that was allotted. And initially I was like, well, I'm asking people to do this. I'm still young enough, able enough, and interested enough. So I decided to go for it myself and, um, applied and was accepted and went to training. But I think to go back, to circle back to your question, I think just growing up on the reservation, knowing the people, knowing the communities, knowing the issues, it helped me understand my response to certain calls to certain areas to deal with those situations. Because, you know, a lot of times if you're not familiar with an area, you don't know the history of an area and you have an incident and you're fresh to it, you may not know how to deal with it, or you may not know the underlying causes of it, so you may not react to it or uh, in, a, in a proper manner. Well, I think that's a good, <clears throat> a good background in terms of uh, what led you to law enforcement, and of course you see the good and bad in that area. You know, I know we've had discussions about uh, stories you've had and how some of the effects of alcoholism and drugs and all that affect our communities. But then there's always hope. You see people nowadays that um, recover, you know, that are doing good for themselves, and there's always that glimmer of hope, but there's also that dark side to that, to that job. So I think uh, it takes a certain type of person to go into that. You know, like I said, you was you there for four years, and that's um, you're almost... Uh, uh, develop probably some kind of PTSD type of process during that, you know. And um, but back to your your story here, um, I also, you also went into becoming one of the tribal liaisons for the governor. That was Governor Meade, right? Yes. Yeah, I was at the time in the fourth year of being a law enforcement officer. I was actually detailed down to Artesia as a training lieutenant. I remember getting the calls from the business council and then also the governor's office to see if I was be interested in that position, that my name would, uh, was being floated around as a possible candidate. I expressed interest, submitted my resume and everything, and I was, I was selected. And it was during the time period where there was a lot of um, angst in that position. There was uh, state legislators at the time that thought it was a a lobbyist position for the tribe and that the state was paying for the tribes to have a lobbyist at the, down in Cheyenne in the capital in their legislature. And so there was a lot of shift in how that position was uh, being viewed. And I worked in that position for the, the first six months and then they crafted a bill in 2015 that reorganized the position, made it a 
uh, cabinet level position where it had to get confirmed by the uh, Wyoming legislature's uh, Senate. And so I went through that process of being uh, Governor Meade's nominee, um, going through the vetting process, and then being voted on by the, for confirmation with the Wyoming Senate for, for that position. So that was an interesting experience. But I, I drew on my experience from growing up on a reservation, being in law enforcement to know all the issues that, you know, our citizens here on the reservation were facing. And so it, was a, it seems like it wouldn't be a natural segue, but it, it was a nice, good segue for me because I had that background in being able to know the issues. And then just, you know, you don't have too many law enforcement officers who are patrol officers who have master's degrees in public administration, oh. you know, patrolling the streets. And so, you know, I had that educational background as well as to help me with that position. And I think it's still, um, and as you know, you work for the governor, and I worked for the governor one time, and um, it's an educational process, you know, down in Cheyenne or parts of Wyoming. They, some people, unfortunately, will know very little about tribal sovereignty or just tribes in general or tribal people. So it's almost an educational process to educate them about ourselves, you know, and um, some are good people, and, and a lot of them uh, sit in the legislature that don't know too much about us. Could you expand a little bit on that? Yeah, I think what helped me with just what you're talking about there is I was also enrolled in a program called Leadership Wyoming, and part of their curriculum is to go into different parts of the states, yes. um, talk about different issues, and meet the, the leaders in these different communities. So in being in liaison, going through that program, I was traveling the state anyway to these different areas. That gave me a good background to see where these different leaders and these different communities, where they're coming from, what issues they're facing, and then being able to tie it back to, well, look, we share a lot of the same issues on the reservation. We have more in common than what, what our differences are. It's just when things get into the political sphere, it becomes one or the other, and it's not necessarily that that case. And so I know just in a lot of these different issues, like in healthcare and education, we share these common themes that, you know, the reservation citizens face to where a community member in Evanston or out in Gillette or sure. some of these smaller areas they face as well being in rural areas. And so we, like I said, we have more in common than we have differences, but then, you know, it's not always portrayed that way. And so there's that educational piece to tie those areas together, and that's basically what the liaison position was for, is to help create that bridge between not only the the governor's office, but also the state legislature and their representatives. So in today's climate, currently there's all this talk of police reform, police defunding, um, and, you know, a lot of that has come from a few cops that have done some negative things in their communities but for you, as an indigenous man and a former law enforcement officer, how do you respond to these ideas of police reform, police defunding, and attacks on police in general? For me, it's well, some of those issues kind of hit close to home over this past uh, summer. You know, we I've had a friend who lives in an adjacent state. Her brother was shot by police had my sister who was in an incident in one of the cities here in Wyoming who was inadvertently shot. Mm -hmm. And so 
your first reaction as being on the other side of it is you have the strong emotional reaction because you lost somebody, you're experiencing a loss, you're having to deal that with that and process all of that. And then on the other side being, like you said, from law enforcement and that perspective, I always look at it, try to look at it very objectively. You have to, when you look at the, the news coverage and everything, you see these 30-second clips of cell phone coverage here and there, and they said, well, this person was shot or this person was um, detained improperly. You don't get the story that happened just before that. You don't know if the law enforcement officers were briefed on a dangerous situation to individuals or for, for the public at large. You don't know if you know what the information they had leading up to that point. So you can't automatically judge what happened right afterwards to say, was that justified? Was that wrong? What happened? Because you don't have that information. Just um, being in law enforcement, I know that you may get a call an hour beforehand just to be on the lookout for somebody who may be brandishing a weapon or maybe um, threatening somebody. And an hour later, you may see that person. And so you already have this heightened sense of um, precautions that you have to take. Because at the end of the day, you have to um, serve the community, you have to protect the community on the one side and protect their rights. And then on the other side, as an individual, you have to make sure you're safe so you can go home to your family and so there's that, some of that dichotomy doesn't, they kind of don't mesh together. They kind of mm. diverge. And sometimes they're in direct conflict with one another when you're having to deal with safety issues. And so it makes it hard to, to look at all of this. Um, but looking at the issues, going back to like defunding and everything, I think um, just like with here on the reservation, we always said we need more police officers to patrol. We need more of that. But when it comes to that, you need police officers who are able to handle the situations that they're being dealt with. They have to have the um, proper training to be able to deal with it. They need to have consistent training. You can't expect somebody to have go to the academy, learn uh, defense techniques, then be on the street and never do that type of work again. And then get caught into a high-pressure, high-stress situation where somebody's in your face fighting you. And then what, what are you going to do? You can go with what you know. And that's mm. usually to hold on as tight as you can, you know, pull out your weapon, use your weapon. So you don't have that certain level to, of, um, uh, I want to say, being able to be sure of yourself and your abilities to do these other things, these other techniques, if you haven't trained that way. Mm. And so when people say, well, we want to defund and everything, well, well, you need to invest in them to make sure the individuals who are doing this job can respond correctly to the situation that's in front of them. Not only respond, but identify the situation that's in front of them. So I think that's important to look at as well. Mm. I know with, um, as Jacques mentioned earlier, how that affects indigenous officers. Um, you know, when we looked at the law enforcement issues a few years ago, we found out that BI officers didn't have um, access to, uh, like, counseling for PTSD. I don't know if that ever um, was resolved. Did you know if that ever was resolved? I know the Wyoming Highway Department or Wyoming Highway Patrol offered their services at that time. I know um, to an extent it has been. I know some officers um, currently have these positions to where they – um, help as almost like counselors to individuals who are in these stressful situations or have 
have gone through these dangerous situations that were PS, um, PTSD. PTSD. Yeah. And so they, they have individuals who, you know, they talk to them, help them go, go through that. So more so than they did in the past. Yeah. I mean, in the past, I remember going through a situation where it was somebody was unfortunately stabbed and they lost their life and we were trying to debrief everybody and we said, well, what, what's next? What's the offer? It's like, well, see you at work tomorrow morning. Mm-hmm. So it was just one of those that wasn't necessarily available, but then you're sitting there as an individual processing all of that. Yes. You know, firsthand seeing all the details and seeing all the uh, emotion from the families and the people who are involved and all the stress and all the um, victimization that's going on. You see all of that, you have to deal with it, and then having to go back to work, you know, the next day. And it's not just for police officers, you know, dispatchers feel that as True. well. They're the ones who are sitting. officers. Yeah, they're the ones sitting, you know, in, in the dispatch, maybe mm-hmm. 20, 30 miles away. And they're the ones having to make sure, do the calls, make sure people are safe, make sure the resources are getting there properly. And so they, they go through that same same level of stress as well. True. Like I said, in, in tribal communities as well as other rural communities, it's a, uh, more likely you're going to know those people that you're being called out to assist or whatever. Yeah, I think that that was probably one of the most difficult things with uh, being in law enforcement here is knowing the people. I remember it was a Christmas Eve, twelve-hour shift, um, overnight. Next day was Christmas, Christmas morning. I remember there was two deaths that that night. You know, people I knew. People I, I I grew up knowing, mm-hmm. and you know they were gone. I had to respond to those calls, and then next thing you know, you're going home, and it's Christmas morning, and you're there with your family. So it's it's a tough transition to make, and I think uh, a lot of that people don't really understand. You know, you see all of that, and you just don't turn it off. I, I remember the longest time after I was out of law enforcement, I still still felt that anxiousness of being in a crowded room and I had to make sure I seen everybody in my field of sight and you know that's natural because you you know you're, you want to make sure you're safe so you all, always have that in your back of your mind who's who is a threat who isn't a threat and you know you just get kind of really a lack of a better term wound up really tight and you you don't have that release and you don't you, you're just operating that way that high stress it takes a while to to get past that get to takes a while to be able to even just to talk about it because then, you know, like I said, we were on 12-hour shifts, and I remember working six days a week and for a three-month period. I remember having three days off at one period. I mean, yeah. it's just, it, wears, it wears on you as an individual. It wears on your psyche as well. But, you know, that's the other part that people don't you – know, we talk about this other part. Well, we need more officers so individuals could have the time off that they need. Then you um – transition from that career as a police officer into um, the co-chairman of the Shoshone Business Council. So that experience really helped you to kind of know a little more about your community. I mean, both sides, I guess. You know, there's the uh, arrest part of it, but there's also the community policing of it, talking to people and um, showing them that you're not a that the, that the law enforcement is not the enemy. But that had to be very helpful when you transitioned into your uh, role as co-chairman for the Shoshone tribe. Yeah, yes, it was. And I think 
like I mentioned earlier, I've been able to draw on my experiences, you know, growing up and then being in these different positions to help me with each position I've kind of progressed towards. And so having that background of being in law enforcement and then on the um, being the governor's liaison and seeing the political side of it and how policy and procedures and things shape people's lives on that level and then going on to the tribal level for, the, for their government, kind of tying it all together and trying to see where we can um, put things in place, lay a foundation in place to help um, better people's lives. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the one area that I'm really, really proud of, well, two areas I'm proud of when I was on council is one was my transition when I was a liaison to the uh, business council as I worked on that Indian education bill mm-hmm. in the state of Wyoming. I helped draft the initial drafts of that. I helped um, do, do all that from my work as a liaison. And then I was in a unique position. I got elected to the business council. Now I'm able to lobby for it. Yeah. So I remember sitting there calling, you know, legislators up you know, from the House and the Senate side when it was in their particular areas and saying why this is beneficial and basically have my own little call sheet of individuals who where they were at their votes. And then when it passed, I was really excited because I see this is this isn't just something that's going to impact somebody like that day, but in the future as well, because now all schools in the state of Wyoming, I think next year they're on track to implement these standards and they'll start teaching that. So all the students starting next year, the school year, will, will be taught the Indian education standards with uh, social studies. And that was a very important piece of legislation that's been a long time coming. I mean, there's obviously we know there's very little about us as tribal people in Wyoming history books, you know. And uh, I think the transition from when I was in grade school years ago um, there was no Indian teachers. You know, now you could go into any one of the, the reservation schools and, and perhaps even off, and you got tribal people that are teachers now. And there's a lot of tribal teachers at the elementary, high school level at the, on the reservation. So I think um, it's time for us to start telling our own history and this Indian Ed for All um, as a start to do that. It definitely, and I, that's why I see it as well. Because when we were talking earlier about these communities across the state that may not ever interact with anybody from the reservation or visit the reservation, now we're having the educational piece that their kids or grandkids are learning and can be taken home with them. That's just invaluable right there to have that type of information out there. Mm-hmm. People may not you know, necessarily agree with it, maybe not really be interested in it, but it's out there, and it's for people to learn. Yeah. And it's, it's our history. You know, probably a lot of wrongs in our past, but we can change those. But I think for the, the future, we could adjust what's being taught to our, not only to our own people, but to other people throughout the state. we got a very rich um, history and great stories to tell. You know, you're, you're one of the examples of... Uh, like you said, being raised all over and um, going to different schools, how you got your education. Um, you're a family man. You got kids, and you know um, it, it's uh, it's good to talk to you here today. You know, we got a lot of funny stories too, but I won't go into those. But, uh, <laughs> well, you know, let's hear one. We'll just bleep it out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but if I may, I'm on a, I, I brought up two points that I was proud of with the. 
being on the council, I, I, I discussed one. The <laughs> other one was um, have an addition to our Shoshone Law and Order Code. Mm -hmm. uh, um, yes. The Domestic and Family Violence Code. Mm -hmm. um, that, that was an issue that I drew upon when I was in law enforcement, seeing all these individuals in domestic uh, violence situations and having this perpetual cycle of people going through that cycle of violence and people not thinking there's any area for them to help. You know, they're not getting, um, quote unquote, justice or any services to them. And so I felt, you know, well, what's, what's driving that? So while well, there's nothing in our code that says, you know, the victim has rights or the victim will be protected, there was a protection orders here. It was just very, very vague and very limited. And so when I was on council, I helped you know, draft the code Put it out there. I mean, anybody's familiar with the legislative process to get something in the Law and Order Code, it takes for the Shoshone side, you have to have it approved in the Shoshone General Council. On the Arapaho side, their legislative authority lies with their business council, so they can approve that. Mm -hmm. So the, the biggest hurdle was getting that out there to the Shoshone people, letting them know, having that meeting. Actually, we didn't have the meeting, but there was a clause in there to be able to do a referendum vote. So that actually went to a referendum vote, and it got passed. Mm -hmm. And so right after, I remember like a week later, we presented it to the Arapaho Business Council. They passed it, and we ratified it um, weeks later, and now it's in the Law and Order Code. And I think that makes a tremendous difference now because before when we, you start seeking out funding for uh, victim services, so, well, if you don't have a code, no, no policy, no foundation to rely upon, mm -hmm. you can't really apply for that funding because how are you going to, use it, how's it gonna be enacted? And so I know just uh, yesterday I made, was aware that both tribes were uh, funded over $800,000 from the Department of Justice for victim services. And Good. so I, that's, I'm very excited about that. And I was, read that, I was very excited to see that, you know, that has helped to lay the foundation Now other services out there. Now these individuals who are in these perpetual cycles of violence, there's a way out for them, there's, there's light for them and there's services for them. Yes. When I say where I think October is domestic violence month. Yes. I didn't I didn't have any purple to wear today. <laughs> but I know today's the day they're supposed to wear purple, right? Yes. And um to to acknowledge that domestic violence, which is uh unfortunately in all communities, not just tribal communities, and as uh LaDonna Harris said, um, we don't have Indian problems. They're basic human problems that sometimes affect us more. Mm. I think we, that's what happens with us now is sometimes those issues affect us more due to poverty and whatever, alcoholism. But um, back to your uh, council days, um, I know that kind of geared you up to where the position you are now. Like I mentioned earlier in the podcast, you're, uh, you're our first tribal member in this position. How how is the feel? How was the transition? Because sometimes um, we're at odds between tribal and BIA. Sometimes we work very well together, but I guess that's within the organization. But what's your thoughts on that? I think being on the business council, and a lot of it's we're in the era of like true sovereignty. Mm -hmm. um, era before that was self governance. Um, so we need to start looking at. Being on the council, you're governing the day-to-day -day operations of for the tribe. You're doing your own self-governance. You're having your own laws, your own procedures. You're enforcing those, and that's what 
sovereignty is all about. And so having that background, knowing that in each of those areas, whether it's you know your self-governance, self-determination areas, um, and all the services that you can provide from you know, judicial services to you know, your water and irrigation to um, land management and land resources. And I know I served on the land resource committee for the first couple of years while I was on council. And that they approve all the, you know, like the home site leases, farm and pasture leases and mm-hmm. everything that the bureau, you know, helps set up those um, contracts and everything. So when I was in those different roles on council, I could see where, there's uh, established um, federal uh, guidelines, federal laws. There's different areas that you know the tribe can take manage- management over, and they can do these different things. They're allowed to do these different things um, through their own self-governance process, and then seeing where the bureau fits into all of that, and how they can kind of mesh together, and where. You know, there, there can be some inherent conflicts with that, wh- which way you want to go. Mm-hmm. So just having that background and seeing you know, what areas there are in each uh, field that the Bureau covers for its trust responsibilities, I, I knew going into the position that I would be able to have that transition as smooth as possible. Okay. Now going back to um, what when you was growing up, and I failed to ask you this, but... Who really um, inspired you to to move forward with the things that you've done? Maybe maybe inadvertently, somebody you looked up to and who really uh, was in your corner, per se? I would say top three people, no particular order. Of course, my mother is always very supportive of me throughout my life. Mm-hmm. Uh, my grandmother, um, she was very influential I remember always teaching me at a very young age you know you're gonna have to work um, twice as far to get half as far and I always stuck with me and I didn't realize what she was saying to me and teaching me is like you know just because we're tribal members uh, we're gonna have a certain um, perspective against you I don't want to say it's um, discrimination or anything or prejudice or anything but people are gonna look at you a certain way and you're gonna have to work twice as hard to show people you're not only at their level but can exceed and be successful in whatever field that you go into. So that always stuck with me as well. And then my grandfather, he spent over 25 years in the military, he traveled mm-hmm. the world, taught me a lot about um, doing things the right way, doing things um, with purpose and being um, a man of your word um, and being able to say, you know, your integrity is earned, it's not given to you, and you're the only one that can give it away. Mm-hmm. And so those, like, those three areas that always just really helped form my, my way of thinking and always inspired me because my grandfather, through his years of service in the military, my grandmother also was um, I'm actually third-generation college. My grandmother mm-hmm. has a, a bachelor's degree in education. She was a high school teacher. My mother has a master's degree in early education. So, you know, just having that educational background and expectation thrust upon me and then having all these different um, experiences with life and how they taught me just really influenced my life. Hmm. It's very, very interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, what kind of comments would you have for younger people nowadays? You know, I've always, I know Jocko gets tired of me saying this, 
But, uh, you know, we utilize this podcast to educate people about ourselves. But we're at the crossroads, I feel, of we have to start educating ourselves about ourselves because a lot of the younger people, uh, some of that knowledge isn't being passed on down to them for whatever reason. There's other families that keep that strong knowledge continually on a general um, generational basis, but there's some kids, maybe through no fault of their own, or don't know too much about our history, about certain things that we do, you know. Well, what are your thoughts on that, and what are your comments on um, what would you tell younger people to um, how to move forward from your perspective? I think a lot of that for younger generations is finding where your place is in the world, figuring that out, who you are as an individual, uh, whether you're Northern Rapo or Eastern Shoshone or you're members of different tribes or you're a mixture of all. I'm, you know, I'm half Arapaho. My dad was full-blood Arapaho. My mother's Eastern Shoshone. I'm enrolled mm-hmm. Eastern Shoshone. So I had that mixture myself, and I grew mm-hmm. up learning um, traditions and ceremonies from both tribes. Mm-hmm. I've seen where there's similarities. I've seen where there's differences. i also seen, and my, you know, like I talked about my grandmother and my mother, they both went to Catholic school. And so I had that influence as well. So I kind of figured out at an early age you know, who I was based on these different avenues. And I think for younger people, I think that's very important to figure out who you are and being comfortable with who you are. And then once you're able to do that, then you can start facing the challenges that we face today. I mean, we're here in the middle of a pandemic. You know, people like to always say it's, you know, we're in unprecedented times. Mm -hmm. I characterize it a little bit different. I think of it as where this is a unique challenge for our day. Because we start looking back to generations, you know, like I'm fourth generation before there was a Wyoming, before Wyoming was a territory, before there was a national park, before there was a reservation. It's, it's that close far back. And you know, people like to think that's you know, ancient history way back in our time, but it's rather recent if you look at it in that context. Mm-hmm. So you look back to our great, 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 great grandparents. The unique challenges of their day was going from being free roaming their territories to being on reservations, changing their way of life. Then their kids growing up and having to survive that way of life. I remember looking at some of the um, old newspapers for our area, and in the early 1900s and the 19-teens, people were asking for donations for tribal members because they didn't have adequate shelters. They were starving. Times were rough. And then, like I said with my grandmother, she went to boarding school. You know, she survived that area. So we look at, we're, we're facing unique challenges for our day, just like our grandparents before us and our yes. parents before us experienced the unique challenges of their day. And so I look at this pandemic, what we're facing right now, this is our unique challenge. Mm-hmm. You know, I have children, I'll probably have grandchildren, and we'll look back at this time and say, well, how did you get past that? So yes. well, we survived. We're descendants of survivors. We're going to continue to be survivors. And the way we do that is, being comfortable with who you are and realizing that challenge you face every day is your challenges, but our past of um, our generations were survivors as well, and we could survive it as well. Speaks to our resiliency. Yes. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Mr. Shakespeare, for all those wise words. Thank you for your story. 
Uh, thank you for the work that you've done in our community as well and for our people. Yes, it's great to have you here, Leslie, and uh, support you as you move forward. And, you know, you're still going to, you're a young man, so you still got a lot of things to do yet. And I know with our um, two basketball stars here, Ronnie and Jocke, they they got a real bright future too. Great people, and um, um, our tribes will continue, you know, like you talked about the resiliency, knowing about yourselves and stuff like that. It's our responsibility to help foster that also. It definitely, and you look at just at the makeup of bull tribes, half of them are under the age of 18, and 60% of them are the, under the age of 25. And so we have this, I feel like we have this gap here of these older generations, my generation, and this younger generation coming up. We all have to be almost stewards and trustees to make sure the next generation's have a foundation to build upon. Mm-hmm. That's why I always felt, no matter what position I have, I'm laying the foundation because I know I'm not going to be there forever. I know the next person needs to build on what I started. Yes. Well, and thank you, Ronnie, for being here today. And you're going to be one of the the hosts here pretty quick. So uh, we welcome you on. And um, Angelo had to leave a little early, but he's also part of that. And I'm sure we'll get more interest as we move along. Uh, Jokahe is transitioning um hopefully it's done a further down the road but uh it's kind of up to him i you know congratulate him for pursuing his master's degree right now at university of memphis and uh he's done really well in terms of bringing us thus far and he'll take us down the road a little little further thank you i appreciate it Uh, i also want to say thank you to all of our listeners without all of you this podcast would be nothing and i want to just encourage you to go follow us on our social media. We've been kind of quiet recently, but we're getting active again. Uh, so follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Just search up Indian Relay Podcast. You can find us on all podcast platforms. I want to encourage you to subscribe to our episodes, uh, to like our pages, and to even download our episodes. I want to send another shout out for County 10. I want to thank them for this opportunity. Thank you to Porters for providing all of the equipment we're using today and Noah Pakotis and JG Pakotis for the music. And with that, I have nothing left to say. Wahey and hahoo. If your plan involves a party, it's your responsibility to plan for a safe and sober ride home. A DWI is a serious crime with serious consequences. This is Cody Bears with YDOT. If you get busted, you may lose your license, pay thousands of dollars in court costs, legal fees, and higher insurance rates. Make sure your last call is a safe one. Order up a sober ride, and please don't drink and drive.